hear the word of God, but also to see it with your own eyes. And we endeavor to cover two or three chapters on the Sunday nights, and so it helps to stay understanding what's happening uh, with the Bible itself. All right. While we're turning there as well, be reminded that uh, water baptism tomorrow night, uh, 6.30, out in the courtyard. If you're a Christian and you've never been water baptized, the Lord commands that you do that. There are reasons for that. We'll explain that immediately before the water baptism. And uh, so all you need to do is just come with something modest to be water baptized in, and we will take it from there. There's changing rooms here and all. Great night of fellowship and and refreshment and also everyone is invited to come on out uh, tomorrow night. Second Chronicles chapter 5. And so all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. So we come up to chapter 4 and we have the building of the temple, the building of, uh, uh, of all of the furnishings and all of the details related to everything. And now we come to a place where under Solomon the temple has been finished. And I like that word finished. I do like... Um, I like things to be finished. I, I, don't, I, I don't think it does any good to build a whole house and then not to put the baseboards on. It's good. I, I can't rest until something is completely finished. It just gnaws at me. And I'm glad God is someone who finishes what he begins. It's to be like God to finish. The Bible says he's the author and finisher of our faith. What he's begun in us, he will complete or finish into the day of Christ Jesus. So important to finish. I think about in this vein the Apostle Paul as he came to the end of his life and he spoke about his finishing the race that God had put in front of him. So not so much to do with baseboards in a house or this kind of physical thing in life but the importance for us to finish the ministries that God has called us to finish. God had called Solomon to build that temple and to finish it. He's called us to do a lot of different things in this world. Things that Solomon couldn't do. Called Solomon to do things we can't do. But all of us can finish. And so the temple, the house of the Lord was finished. It took seven years to finish that uh, building of the temple. Those Fabulous, as you read the details of it, uh, what was involved. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Now, we read last week about the amount of gold and, and uh, the fine, beautiful stones that were used, the, the precious stones that were used in building the temple, beautifying the temple, all of it is an expression of the worthiness of God and of the fact that He is He is God. Gold being a, a, a uh, the metal of kings, and so we look at that and they say they must have used all of it in the building of that temple, but they didn't. The giving of King David, along with other leaders in Israel, the amount of wealth that had been accumulated in defeating their enemies when attacked under the reign of Solomon, not only were they able to build the entire temple, but then they even had left over, which they then put in the treasuries of the house of God. And part of the temple there were storerooms for this kind of wealth. It would have been the securest place, kind of like the most secure bank in the ancient world, securest place uh, to put wealth in, in Israel. Now they've got the temple, it's all built now, and they've got all of the furnishings in place. And so now they've got one final thing that they need to do to be able to say, all right, Lord, this is yours now. And that is to take the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God from the tabernacle where it was being housed until the temple was completed in the city of David down below the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem to bring it from there and transport it up to the temple and put it in the Holy of Holies. The only two furnishings that were taken from the tabernacle and used in the new temple was the Ark of the Covenant and the brazen altar, which was outside. Everything else was built brand new for the temple as God gave the directions to David. And so they begin this process now with Solomon assembling the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes 
the chief priests of the children of Israel in Jerusalem that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. And therefore all of the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which is at the seventh month. And so they gather now to put the Ark of the Covenant in its permanent location in the Holy of Holies of the new temple. And we're told that the date that was set aside for this uh, great event and also a great feast that was going to be associated with it was uh, it was done in the seventh month associated with uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurs every year in the Jewish religious calendar and what is the equivalent of our September, October. Solomon finished the temple 11 months earlier. He waits for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall to dedicate the temple. The Feast of Tabernacles was a feast. There were three great feasts in the Jewish religious calendar. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost 50 days later, and then also the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God's faithfulness to the children of Israel during the 40 years in which they wandered in the wilderness because of their sin and because of their unbelief. They would live in, uh, during that time, they could have had a multi-million dollar mansion in Jerusalem, but during the Feast of Tabernacle, they would set up booths made out of fig branch, or, or uh, palm branches or whatever they could get a hold of, and they would live under those so that when they laid down with the kids and the wife and the husband and all at night, and they would look through up to the sky and they would see the stars and the moon and all, it would remind them of what their ancestors had done in the wandering of, in the wilderness and how God had taken care that not a, none of their shoes wore out he fed him every day celebration of God's faithfulness and here he chooses this particular feast to uh, to dedicate the uh, the temple to the Lord to uh, because he is wanting to express on behalf of the nation the acknowledgement that this thing has been built because of God's faithfulness and his goodness to his people and that even as the Ark of the Covenant had wandered here and there for all of these hundreds of years of Jewish history, now it was going to find a place of rest that God had chosen. So very, very appropriate feast for um, dedicating the temple. And so all of the elders came, the Levites, they took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark, the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And so as they brought up all of these elements, we're told that they brought up from the old tabernacle. Not, it's interesting to me. Uh, they brought up not only the Ark of the Covenant, but all of the remaining furnishings that were now not going to be used, that were associated with the old tabernacle, associated with Moses and the tabernacle itself. You ever wonder what they do with the tabernacle? They sell it on eBay. What they did is they took it and they put it in the storerooms at the, uh, of the new te- temple that had been built. And so also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark, they were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude as that ark of the covenant is being brought from the city of David on a lower level there on, on uh, Mount Moriah and then brought up to uh, the area where the temple had been built. And then the priests, they brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place. And you notice the priests brought the ark of the covenant Solomon does not make the mistake that his father made of, of just putting it on a cart and rolling it up the hill. He'd learned from uh, why make the same mistakes when we can learn from other people's mistakes. So it is carried by the priests, even as God uh, directed it, it should be. It was delivered into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim that were there, uh, kind of sculpted into the background of the Holy of Holies. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark 
and its poles. And the poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside the temple altogether. And they are there to this day at the time of the writing of this. So God makes, uh, the Holy Spirit makes kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a big deal out of, the, out of the poles that were associated with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was always carried by human beings. It was built with four rings on each of its corner. A pole would go through those rings. They would be carried by four people. Four priests would carry that. And it was all a symbol. The Ark of the Covenant being a symbol of the presence of God, it was a symbol of what would become it was a shadow symbol of what would become fully apparent to us in the New Covenant in that the presence of God was to be carried, even symbolically under the Old Covenant, the presence of God was always to be carried by mankind, by priests. And in the New Covenant, the Bible says that each of us as a Christian is a priest. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? You don't have to go through some kind of a whatever. We're, we're all priests the operation of the priest in the Old Testament was to represent God before the people and the people before God. That's our function as Christians in the world today. And so we carry, we are, uh, we are the uh, holy of holies. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And so we carry the presence of God everywhere that we go in the world. So sometimes, I mean, most of our lives are spent going to pretty mundane places. But they aren't, they aren't mundane when Christians show up there because we've brought God right into the midst of that situation or in that environment. So very, very beautiful here, very important to God that, that, uh, that God's people would recognize that he has determined that his presence is carried into the world by his people. What a privilege it is to be able to do that. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at uh, Mount Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And so inside the Ark of the Covenant were just the two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. Now some of us who have been kind of studying this all along since we began in Genesis, but your question might be, uh, what happened to Aaron's rod that budded? What happened to the pot of manna that was in there at one time under the direction of the Lord? The answer to that, we don't know. You know how liberating it is to say, I don't know, that nobody knows? There's some speculation that earlier when the, the Ark of the Covenant fell into the hands of the Philistines and they, uh, that they might have in some way opened it up, removed those items, but nobody really knows at this point in time just the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments from the time of Moses were in there. I'm not complaining. I'm satisfied with that. Just letting you know in case you are asked in double jeopardy. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the most holy place, for all of the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. In other words, at this dedication of the temple here, remember they divided up into 24 different segments of priests and singers and all of this. Well, this was a special occasion. They didn't know which one of the 20 groups of 24, the 24 groups of this should come. So they all came, which is exactly what they ought to have done. And so they were there, the Levites who were the singers, uh, all of Asaph and Heman and Jedathan with their sons and their brethren, the worship leaders, they stood at the east end of the altar clothed with white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding the trumpets. And indeed it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one. And so you just put yourself in the place. You have thousands of people who are singing. You have 120 uh, trumpeters that are playing. You have all of these other musical instruments that are playing. I mean, it must have really, really been something in to, in to be in the middle of the worship of the Lord there in, in the uh, dedicating of the temple. And indeed it came to pass 
when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make a sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord and when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music they praised the Lord saying for he is good his mercy endures forever and as they were singing this out to the Lord in mass that the house the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud it represented the presence of God and so the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house and so God comes in just a visible evidence of the fact that he has heard their praise and he has settled down in and and uh, and and uh, taking his presence there in this building that's been dedicated to him and he's so he's communicating his pleasure with the temple he's communicating his pleasure with their worship and uh, and the clouds signaled the fact that he was now inhabiting that temple. When they began this whole worship service and all, they didn't know what God would do. They didn't know, okay, now wait a second, because somewhere in here that cloud is going to happen and God is going to do that. They, they didn't know what was, what was going to occur. All they knew is they loved God. They wanted to sing praises to Him. They'd been directed to build this uh, by God Himself, they obeyed Him, and then whatever God wanted to do that on top of it was completely up to God. And so God comes in and just gives this strong evidence of His appearing. You never know what God is going to do when His people assemble together. That's why the Bible says to not forsake the assembling together of the saints. He makes any service what He wants to make of it. As we just bring our praise, our worship, our adoration to him and and so he comes in makes his presence known so strongly that the priest couldn't even continue ministering there and then Solomon spoke and he declared in the midst of all of this the Lord said he would dwell in the dark clouds so he acknowledges that the Lord has now inhabited the temple I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever and then the king turned around and he blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly uh, was standing and so he here he is he recognizes the Lord has come and he has inhabited now uh, this uh, temple he has made it uh, his own and they were thrilled for it here is this um, manifestation great manifestation a revelation of God uh, in their midst meeting that with them on planet earth again we don't uh, do say anything to slight the old covenant because it was what it was but it was all of it was a type and a shadow of what the Lord would do God the Father would do through his son Jesus Christ and you think about the manifestation of God that we've been given in the new covenant and how it is that God sent his son into the world full of grace and full of truth this great manifestation of God greater than any in all of all of human history and so he begins to bless the congregation uh, that is there and he said blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David Solomon's not taking any glory for building this thing this is God said it God has done this you give him all the praise and all the glory since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt I have chosen God Solomon quoting God I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. And now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Solomon, is, he, he's showing great character here. He brings in the name of his father. He's giving his father credit for what it is that has really happened here, his father's relationship with God. It's a big it's a big man that can do that kind of thing. And so, but the Lord spoke to my father, David, 
and said, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. And so the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. In other words, he's saying, ladies and gentlemen, this temple stands before you, before your very eyes here in this place, as a miracle of God, as a demonstration of his grace. That's a wonderful spiritual man at this point in his life to give the Lord all the credit. And then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. So there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people here. And so he stands before them. He spread out his uh, hands. And for Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, three cubits, four and a half feet high. And he had set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it. So he built this little platform. Nothing God had called him to do, but he had built this knowing the size of the crowd that would be there, that it would be important for him to be elevated for people to see him and also to hear this prayer that is obviously very important to him to pray to the Lord. And so as he was in, uh, in that place, he stood on that uh, platform that he had built. He knelt down on his knees before the assembly of Israel, just an expression of his humility, and then he spread out his hands toward heaven. And so he begins to pray. He's on his knees. His hands are lifted up to heaven. And one of the great positions of prayer in the Old Testament is to lift their hands, uh, was for them to lift their hands up to the Lord. There's a lot of different positions to pray. Um, sitting in a car is a position to pray. Uh, you can pray walking. You can pray. I don't say that that should be our deepest and most intimate prayer while driving. We can pray sitting. We can pray on our knees. We can pray standing. We can pray with arms uplifted. But the Jews typically would lift their hands up in prayer because their understanding of God was that he was in the heavens. And so they would lift up their head, lift up their hands and then pray and speak to God in this way. It's interesting that in, in Christian circles when people, we say, well, let's pray, almost everybody closes their eyes and they put their head down like this. You say, what, what gives with that? Well, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes into our heart. So we don't think of God as way out there up in heaven. That's not where we commune. We don't commune with Him on this great distance. When you have your morning devotional with Him, it's not like you're trying to commune with Him way, way out there like this. We're communing with Him right inside of ourselves. That's where we're having fellowship with Him because that's where He dwells. All the different positions are great, but it, again, it speaks of the beauty of the covenant that we have uh, with the Lord and, and the, that it is a better, uh, better covenant, a more intimate covenant with God. And so this was the position that he was in, and then he prayed and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven nor, or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have spoken, both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Every time we pray, we pray to a God who is absolutely faithful to his word and to his promises. I think it's wonderful to realize in each of our Christian lives, I know it's a comfort to me. Sometimes I get in the middle of a pickle or some kind of a trial or whatever, and I think to myself, Lord, it's going to be so sad that my life disproves one of your promises. I'll just keep it between you and me, but I mean it won't be good. And it can look so close like God's Word is going to fail. But when time is given, He's always faithful 
to his promises. His very reputation is tied up in it. I think that it's beautiful here as Solomon prays and, and as he begins his pray, prayer with the people, he begins by taking a moment or two and considering the God that he and they are praying to. He said, so he's saying, we are praying now to a God who always keeps his word. He's utterly faithful. You know, sometimes if we go right to the Lord in prayer, the Bible says cast your cares on him, on God, because he cares for us. So we go in there, we've got about six cares to, you know, load up on him and all. We can head right in there, boom, 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 knock it out, put it on his shoulders and then head out. And then we get, before we get to the door, we've got four and a half of them back on our back. But if we stop and we take a little bit of time, we just remember how big he is, how great he is, give him that praise. Who it is we're committing these things to, then we have a tendency to leave them with him. And that's why Jesus, when, he, when he, the disciples came to him and he said, Lord, teach us how to pray. He said, well, after this manner pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And when you just stop for 30 seconds or for 30 minutes and meditate on how, who it is we're communicating to right now in prayer, then it makes it a lot easier later to ask for daily bread, to ask for forgiveness and to extend forgiveness, to ask for help in temptation and spiritual warfare. And so he models this great thing. It's an important part of worship and prayer is to stop, take some amount of time to remember the greatness of the one that we are praying to. And therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they may walk in my law as you have uh, walked before me. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> Uh, uh, again, the incarnation uh, of uh, Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Praise the Lord. He has done that in human history. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. You wonder how much more impressed Solomon and the children of Israel might have been with the life of Jesus over that temple if they had only been able to look back on it as we're able to look back on it instead of ahead through the Scriptures. And yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And then he heads into some very specific petitions that he's going to ask the Lord uh, for uh, related to the temple. And may you hear the supplications of your servant and your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, representing his presence, hear from heaven. He has no illusions that God has, you know, set up camp fully in his fullness in that temple. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and where you hear, forgive. And these are the specifics that he lifts up to the Lord. If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. And so the picture is kind of like this. You've got two people who have had a disagreement over you know, something that has occurred. They both have two different stories or maybe somebody loaned somebody $10,000 and the person said, I don't know anything about that. And also you've got one person's word against another. Solomon says, when they bring both of these people before this temple and they both swear that their version of things is the truth. God, you, again, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. In other words, he knows everything. 
when, they, when these two stand and they swear that their version is the truth, you know who's lying and is unrighteous. You know who is telling the truth and righteous. And so would you ex- bring judgment on the unrighteous and bring favor on the righteous? And he's basically asking God to be heavily involved in reinforcing uh, a standard of right and wrong in the nation. Wouldn't it be great to be able to have a place kind of like that to go to. You bring every, I'm sure every judge in the land would love to have that, or every attorney. that here's, You bring them here and you're going to know all of the facts concerning the situation. But it was just that way. Lord, we don't want right and wrong and justice to be corrupted in our land, and so we ask you to be involved. And so he does it different ways in our culture. I pray for law enforcement an awful lot in our community. I almost never go to sleep at night without praying for law enforcement that are on duty uh, in the evening and in our community. It's that time of night, a lot of things going on. And I just say, Lord, just protect them, of course, and and give them favor in their very small numbers in the light of what they're up against. Would you just supernaturally bless them, give them insights and favor for dealing with crime and lawlessness in our land? and I believe that he answers those, those kind of prayers. Just that prayer that God would be involved in uh, justice and righteousness in our land. Or if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you. God's people should never be defeated. It's only because of sin that we are defeated. So he says, if that occurs and they return and confess your name, and they pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your people Israel, and then bring them back to the land which you gave to them and their fathers. So, in, the, in times of military defeat. And when the heavens are shut up, and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. So this is more than a drought. This is God's judgment upon the nation of Israel because of their sin to get their attention. I notice that the governor of Texas has asked the people of Texas and the United States to pray for rain and that, uh, that uh, uh, part of our, our nation. It's a good thing. You know, I don't know if the drought is because of sin or whatever it is, but it's good to acknowledge the Lord in this. So here's a case where there's a drought because of sin. And when they pray toward this place, Solomon said, and confess your name, and they turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that, they may, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on the land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. We do thank the Lord for a nice wet winter this year in the state of California. I always say to the Lord, Lord, we don't deserve now one drop of rain from you in this unrighteous state that we live in, but we'll take every drop you give because you're gracious. And when there's a famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, again because of sin, Whenever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to the temple, this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all of his ways whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to know, to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. And moreover, concerning a foreigner, a non-Jew, a Gentile, who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and they pray in this temple. So here are non-Jews becoming uh, proselytes or converts to Judaism, or they become God-fearers, They begin to worship the God of Israel because they have seen the great miracle that God has done among His people from the time of before Moses, Abraham on, but also in the time of Solomon. So when they would then come to the temple to worship this same righteous, holy, gracious God, then Solomon's prayer was that he would, God wouldn't just hear the prayer of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all 
all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. And so uh, Isaiah would later write concerning the temple that it was to be called a house of prayer for all nations. It wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the whole world to come to know the true and the living God. And that's why Jesus, when he cleansed the temple because they were selling all of those animals at exorbitant prices and they were doing money changing and ripping the people off and Jesus overturned the tables and all and he drove the money changers and all out with a, 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 a whip of, of cords and all. He, uh, he was upset with the fact that these people were giving God a bad name, not only among the Jews but also among the Gentiles. And he quoted that very verse from Isaiah and as he was driving them out he says is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves going all the way back to Solomon's prayer for the temple which was being violated in that time and when your people go out to battle against their enemies this is a a righteous war God sends them out to battle wherever you send them and when they pray to you toward this city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built in your name then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause so here they are on the other side of the world fighting some kind of a battle they have no means of accessing the temple so if they would just turn in the direction of the temple pray he asked that the Lord would honor that and of course the Lord did and when they sin against you for there is no one who does not sin everybody okay with that? do we have any anyone that's never sinned in the room tonight? okay not that uh, I would have applauded you if you had raised your hand. I would have just wanted to make sure that I couldn't be hit by the lightning that could potentially make an example of you. And when they, they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, everybody needs a Savior, and you become angry with them and deliver them to their enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near, Yet when they come to themselves in that land of captivity where they've been carried captive and they repent, they make supplication to you in the land of their captivity saying, we have sinned and we have done wrong and committed weaknesses. And when they turn to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been carried captive and pray toward the land which you gave their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and toward the name, the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer, and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And now, my Lord, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. In verse 38 there, talking about this of course would have been a great uh, encouragement to the post-exilic Jews who were coming back to the land for whom this history was written uh, coming back to the land from the Babylonian captivity that God was not through with them despite uh, the rebellion and, and the sin of their forefathers and and so we remember in the book of Daniel where Daniel in, in the middle of all of that long captivity where he would get up several times a day he was so punctual about it and diligent about it they even attempted to use it to trap him related to it but he would open up the windows of his house and he would direct his prayers in the direction of Jerusalem to offer them to the Lord the temple was not in existence at that time because the Babylonians had completely destroyed it the closest that David could or Daniel could do was pray toward uh, Jerusalem which is exactly what he did so sometimes you know you sit here in a room like this and and uh, you think okay we well, got this thing over here and then and then here and what does that really matter and, and am I going to remember any of this at all and all well you will because the word doesn't return void and it'll be the first time so then we get to the book of Daniel and then we read what Daniel is doing and why he's doing it. And we realize it has its roots here. And it doesn't happen in a week. For those of you who are new to the Bible, 
and growing in your knowledge of the Bible. You say, oh, 90% of what this guy is saying is absolutely over my head. It's all over my head too, but anyway. But you say, I don't, I don't get it. But you know, if the Lord tarries, there'll be a month from now. And there'll be a three months from now and a six months from now and a six years from now. And it will take a time like this in your Christian life for little pieces to come together for the whole thing then to click for you. So it all is interwoven and it all helps it come together to help us understand the, the Word of God and the God of this Word and deepen our relationship with Him. And now therefore arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. So Solomon now invites him to take possession of this temple in prayer. You and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. And let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away, uh, away the face of your anointed. Uh, anointed and, uh, but remember the mercies of your servant David. And so the reference to anointed here is a reference to Solomon, uh, actually God's goodness to him and allowing him to build the temple. And then when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offerings there on the altar and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now there's an amen to a prayer. So Solomon lifts up this prayer. Can I get a witness? Can I get an amen? He didn't even have to ask for it. God gave, how do you like an amen like that every time you prayed? So God comes in and he says, amen to this prayer. Everything about the prayer pleased him. He, was say, he said, I say okay, absolutely, to everything that you've prayed. And I demonstrate it now in consuming these sacrifices on the altar and filling the temple uh, even more further with my glory. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord that had filled the house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground and on the pavement and they worshipped and they praised the Lord saying, for He is good, His mercy endures forever. Ever. They are quoting Psalm 106 verse 1. Remember the Psalms in those days, that was the Jewish hymnal. So we don't know really who wrote Psalm 106, but it might have been in heavy rotation in the worship set at that time. They all knew it. And they just began to praise the Lord with this worship song or psalm that they had been taught. So what happens here, you say, well, I thought back in chapter 5 the glory of the Lord came down on them. What's this? The glory filled the temple in chapter 5 to where the priests couldn't minister inside. Now his glory spills out of the temple into the outer area so that the great congregation of the Jews outside will, know, will see and experience what the priest did earlier, God's favor and his blessing upon them and upon this temple. And then uh, the king and all the people then offered sacrifices to the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls. You just count to 22,000 sometimes, see how long it takes you. That's a lot of bulls. 120,000 sheep, that's a lot of sheep. And so the king and all the people dedicated the, the house of the Lord. You say, why so many bulls and so many sheep? It's an expression of their worship. It took that many to express the greatness of their love toward the Lord and their worship toward the Lord. And the priests attended to the services. The priests also were the instruments of music of the Lord. And so it's going to have this great big barbecue dedication service and all of these animals. And then they're going to have all this music going on. It's going to be a spiritual holy hootenanny. And so this great celebration now begins. The priests attended to their services. The Levites also were the instruments of the music of the Lord which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For his mercy endures forever, whenever David offered praise by their ministry. And the priests sounded trumpets opposite them, while all of Israel stood. I mean, this is the kind of thing that if you had been there, I mean, you'd hold on to your ticket for the rest of your life. It'd be the claim of the fame of the greatest thing in your life. So exciting. And furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was out in the front of the temple, for he 
uh, offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar which Solomon had made, it was good enough to offer up the daily sacrifices, but these kind of numbers, they couldn't do it. And so he put kind of a temporary uh, place there in the middle of the court to, to offer up the, this number of burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. Interesting, you notice in verse 7, to understand the whole scene, what was being offered to God were burnt offerings, and the peace offering. The burnt offering, its unique characteristic, as we've seen many times, was consumed completely upon the altar. It was completely burned. It represented complete consecration to God. The sacrifice did. The peace offering was an interesting one because it would be offered to God through the priest. But the priest would then take a portion of it, offer it on the altar to the Lord, and it would be consumed. But a portion of that sacrifice would then be returned to the offerer. So what it symbolized was God sharing a meal with the person that was offering the sacrifice. And the Jewish mind considered a meal to be a very mystical experience. Because when you would sit down and eat with somebody, if you took the bread, the pita bread, you dipped it in a sauce, you ate it. Somebody else took a piece of that same loaf of bread, put it in the sauce, they ate it. Now you've got a mystical union because the same bread that's in you is now in me. So it was a spiritual experience for the Jew to eat with one another, to fellowship with one another. That's why a Jew would not eat with a Gentile, because they didn't want to have this kind of a connection or relationship with a Gentile. So here you have in these uh, peace offerings that are being offered is the recognition here that we are having intimate fellowship with God. I'm having a meal with Him. The further significance of this is that God, it was the meal was God's. He was offering it to them. They were His. He was the host now and sharing it with them. In that ancient culture, but also true in the Middle Eastern culture today, once you come under their roof, even if you are a bitter enemy, they will do you no harm. They are responsible for your welfare. And they take that very, very seriously. So to eat with God at His invitation was communicating that they were there at his invitation. He was going to take care of them. No harm would come to them. So it was just like all of these. Not, it wasn't just the food. It was all the spiritual side to it, the emotion of it, of what is happening between God and myself at his invitation through all of these offerings. And at that time, Solomon kept the feast of this dedication seven days, and all Israel with him, a great assembly, very great assembly, from the entrance of Hamath, which was all the way up in the northern part of Israel, to the brook of Egypt, the southern part. People came from all over the place to be a part of this. And on the eighth day they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. So it was a 14-day feast. This is pretty good. I really like this about the Old Testament. You say, oh boy, you know, you've got the big feast coming up and we've got to go to Jerusalem and the whole deal and everything. But I'm sure it was like, okay, this is paid vacation. You're going to get taken care of. God was, is it what God's going to take you away from the farm to come and do this thing and he's not going to bless the farm? Of course he is. So here was this uh, two-week period. Well, one week was taken up celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. The other week was the dedication of, uh, of the temple itself. Total of 14 days. And then because all even good things have to come to an end, on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. And so they just, they've been well fed for 14 days. It's been worship. It's been praise. It's been sacrifice. It's been fellowship. And now they leave that place. And again, you would talk about that for the rest of your life. I mean, what an experience it must have been. And thus Solomon finished, there's the word again, the house of the Lord and the king's house. And Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make the house of the Lord and in his own house. 
Uh, It took him 13 years to finish his own house. took seven years to build the temple, total of 20 years. He reigned 40 years. So this brings us to the halfway point of, uh, of Solomon's reign. And then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I've heard your prayer. And he acknowledges that, that he, he accepted that prayer. And I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. I've answered your prayer. And when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. So one of the great promises concerning prayer there in, in uh, verse 14, one of the great verses really of um, the entire book of Second of uh, Chronicles, and the Lord gives this promise of how he would respond to the children of Israel uh, during, uh, to their repentance following a, a time of rebellion. He required four things of them, that they would humble themselves, that is, they'd have a changed attitude about themselves and about their pride. The interesting thing, one of the, defini- one of the translations of the word that's used for pride in the New Testament is to see myself above. A person who is proud is a person who sees themselves above other people. But that's not the highest expression of pride in life. The worst expression of pride is to see myself above God. And there's a lot of that going around. But for the child of people that don't know the Lord or they're rebellious against God or they reject God. But for the child of God, disobedience, even the smallest little part of disobedience in my life, willful disobedience that I'm aware of, but I just keep doing that, that is really the height of pride in my life because I am seeing myself as above God, above His Word, above His standard. And so He's calling on them. They need to humble themselves. And then they need to pray. pray. Prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God. Prayerlessness is an expression of our independence related to God. And so here we have a return to the fact that we recognize that we're dependent upon God, seeking my face, which means essentially they would abandon any kind of hope in themselves and return to fully relying upon the Lord, and then to turn from their wicked ways, which is repentance. Repentance is having a change of mind about the sinful direction that I'm going in that produces a change in action. It changes my direction in life. But it begins with the mind. It begins with recognizing I'm disobeying God's word. I don't like the direction that I'm going in. And so I'm going to change direction. And no true repentance occurs except that there is a physical change of direction in life. The Bible talks about godly sorrow worketh repentance. Sometimes we think repentance is feeling really bad about the direction that we're going in life. That's not repentance. That's godly sorrow. That's short of repentance. Repentance has really occurred in my life when I turn from practically, physically, materially, from the sinful direction that I'm going in. And then he promised then to forgive uh, their sin and to heal their land. Now, I would say, I've been to a lot of prayer meetings through the years in which this particular verse is you know, put up on the screen or something like that as a, a promise for us as Christians to claim. And it's a, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful promise, but it's a little apples and oranges for us as, as Christians. And we ought to at least know that. The promise is made to the children of Israel. And the children of Israel or the nation of Israel prior to them setting up their monarchy and the kings and all was a theocracy. Everybody in the whole land was supposed to be a lover of God. So if the whole nation, all of them Christians, so to speak, if the whole nation turned and did these things, these four things, then God said, I will nationally forgive your sin and I will restore your land. It's talking about a national repentance going on because of the pickle that their sin had put them in. We don't live in a theocracy in the United States of America. Perhaps you've noticed 
<laughs> the theocracy is uh, I, me, and my. Those are the, that's the trinity of the United States of America at the, at the current point in time, and maybe that will change shortly. But th- that we are not a theocracy. And, and so uh, we can have every Christian in the United States of America pray, humble themselves, repent of their sin, do the right thing, and then still have 80% of the power of this country in the hands of those that are continuing in sin. And so we can't repent for other people. We can't claim this in its fullness. Now, there's nothing wrong, though, with looking at this verse and realizing that God does honor this kind of thing among His people. I just can't claim it to its fullness. It's a, it's a specific promise. So it's a great thing for us as God's people to look at maybe like the United States, the nation that we're in, and we look and see all of the sin that our nation has gotten into and the trouble that it's gotten into as a result of it. Maybe our playing a part in that personally or individually, getting caught up in all of that kind of stuff, and then just saying, slow, 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 let's pull back. Let's get back to God. Let's humble ourselves. Let's understand what's really important. He's really got our attention. And then for us to become right with God and then to use our rightness with Him however He wants to bring revival or refreshing to the nation. We just can't claim this as something that will happen if we do that as Christians. I think a wonderful New Testament equivalent to this promise, though, is in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. And James wrote, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. So in this covenant that we're in, God is dealing with individuals less than entire nations in terms of the promises that He makes for uh, revival and restoration and, and this kind of thing because it's, it's just different. And so he said um, in verse 16, For I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, if you, these are conditional, if, 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 if you keep my commandments or my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as a ruler in Israel. And then he gives them a warning. Again, God coming to Solomon. He recognizes without a doubt a weakness in Solomon in the area of obedience. So he warns him, be obedient, don't be disobedient. God never warns unless there's a reason for it. It's a wonderful thing to be warned by God. It's whom he loves, he chastens. And Solomon is not going to heed this warning well enough. But the Lord then gives him the warning against disobedience, verse 19, but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, and you go and you worship other gods and worship, uh, serve other gods and worship them, Solomon will do this in spades. <laughs> Terrible. He said, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them. I'll remove Israel from the land. This was unthinkable to, to, uh, to them at that time. But God says, you go get into all this idolatry and the nation goes into it. I'll remove you from this land. And this house which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. In other words, he'll abandon the temple, let it be destroyed, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among the people. He's telling Solomon, this temple is great. I love what happened for these 14 days. If the people that come and start to hang out here are idolaters worshiping everything else in the world and they come here as well and they don't come as obedient people worshiping me in spirit and in truth, I'm out of here. 
The building, the gold, the mortar, the stone, the everything, none of it means more to me than the heart of my people and the sincere worship of my people. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord thus done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will answer because they forsook the Lord God their father who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. And therefore he has brought all of this calamity upon them. And so the Lord basically saying, I'm going to make you a witness to the Gentile world, to the unsaved world. I'm going to make you a witness that I am faithful to my word, whether it is to bless you in obedience or to judge you in disobedience. But they will know my nature one way or the other. And the encouragement to Solomon, Solomon, obey me, stay on the blessing side of my word, my commandments, and of my heart. And that's the heart of any father, to bless his children. And so here he is, he pleads with Solomon here. And Solomon will be the worst, as far as I'm concerned, in the history of all of the kings for introducing idolatry. In one generation, he fast-tracked wickedness and idolatry in the nation of Israel in a way that nobody else did. They built on it later, but he disregards all of this warning. And just as God said would come to pass, it did come to pass tragically in their history. Again, the people reading this history would know that they had lived through the consequences. The worship team would come forward, and if you'll stand, we'll close up this evening.